This podcast was developed through a partnership between the Clemens Family Farm and Brown and Out in collaboration with Echo, Leahy Center for Lake Champlain through a grant from Art Place America. Hey everybody and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're recording live from the Martin Luther King Jr. community celebration at the Echo Center and I wanted to uh, firstly thank Clemens Family Farm for having Praise and I here today. Thank you, Uh, thank you. And also the Echo Center for having us. Uh, So let us begin, Praise. (laughs) I'd like to ask you about words. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In particular, Mm -hmm. your words for 2020. Hmm... Um, my words for 2020, this is something I've thought a lot about. (laughs) So I have two words in particular for 2020. They are uh, vulnerability and pleasure. Uh, Both of those can be related. They're different in some ways. But for me, this is how they're playing out. Um, Vulnerability in terms of uh, being vulnerable, uh, being brave, and that means being honest with myself and my own emotions. Uh, that means being honest with other people and all aspects of my life. Um, sort of doing things that make me feel uncomfortable but not unsafe. Um, and then pleasure uh, for me is more so about doing things that I enjoy. And when I am doing those things, being really uh, cognizant of the fact that I do those things with all of my senses. So being really present and in the moment when um, I'm doing those things that bring me pleasure, be it um, washing my face at the end of the night or um, doing hip opener stretches <laughs> before I go to bed or um, essential oils in my shower, whatever the case may be, really being and using my senses um, for the things that bring me pleasure. Vulnerability, do you find that that's something that's hard to access generally? Yeah, <laughs> it is, which is which is part of the reason why I set the intention to make it my word for this year. Um, and thinking back, uh, just like over my life, vulnerability is not a thing that is seen as a good quality. Um, vulnerability is seen as weak. It's seen as um, not courageous, like letting people see your flaws. You never want to let someone see you down and out or weak. Um, but I also think of the trope of the strong black woman and how we aren't allowed to be vulnerable and aren't allowed to show emotions in a particular way. And that doesn't hurt. That doesn't help us at all. Um, so a lot of my thinking around vulnerability has shifted particularly in the last couple of years, to see vulnerability as a strength and something that I want to encompass and embody um, and live out in my own life. Yeah. And when it comes to pleasure, Mm -hmm. I feel like society is definitely drawn to, like, pleasure-seeking, and Mm -hmm. that's sort of something that we're um, primed to do and seek out but I feel like you're talking about a different more holistic yeah yeah I'm thinking about it in a very different way um I think so one we live in a capitalistic society which uh really which really sort of prioritizes the hustle and the grind and productivity and not really resting or stopping to be in the here and now moment um, which is toxic for a lot of us. Um, it's not helpful. 
it like we keep it keeps us either thinking towards the future which is good in balance or thinking in the past which in balance is also good but what about being here in the present so a lot of my uh, thinking around pleasure is being in the present moment when um when doing things that bring me joy and pleasure so it's different in that way it's more it's more holistic um it's not so much it's not so much around like hedonism, which I think is more so what our society values, um, but it's really more like intentional pleasure creation. So we're talking about lavender is going to be involved. Lavender, yes. <laughs> Lemongrass, essential oil, if that's your thing. Um, orange, fruit like fruits, sweets, like stretches, really being in your body for me. Do you like golden milk? Golden milk? Is that the, the milk with the turmeric powder? I haven't had that. Is it good? It's amazing. Uh, Something to add to your list okay. for pleasure in okay. 2020. <laughs> I'll give it a try. <laughs> so, it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is. And I think that um, it makes sense to talk about his legacy mm-hmm. as a social justice leader. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know, is, is that someone who inspired you? And if not, can you name some other um, social justice workers who have inspired you? Yeah. Um, MLK is definitely an inspiration. Um, I draw a lot of my inspiration from him, but really from um, black feminist uh, social justice leaders, particularly thinking about Audre Lorde is a huge one for me. Um, Her work around community and collectivism and just being um, a black queer woman uh, and like just the way that she was very intentional um, with centering her own power, her own erotic power, um, has been very big for me. Um, In that same vein, Octavia Butler, who is more known like in the literary world. um, Yes, (laughs) she is amazing. I love Octavia Butler. Um, and just the ways that she was able to use the story she created um, to, like, imagine worlds and, like, just just the way her imagination works. I was just like, wow, <laughs> I can't even I can't even deal. But in her science fiction stories, the way that she um, brought in themes of like racism and sexism and in these ways that were so big um, is just it's huge to me. Um, she is the author of help me with this for octavia butler yes um parable of the sower she has a, a book of short stories that is amazing called blood child um maybe it's like 10 or so short stories that are like all really good um she's she's uh, she has she's written a lot of different books she passed away in the early 2000s so she's no longer with us um but her books have been very inspirational to me and to other authors that i really love um, there's this woman, Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote the book Pleasure Activism, which was like a defining book for me in 2019. Mm. In 2019, excuse me. Um, so, so yeah, she's definitely part of like the lineage of people that I think of when I think about my own journey um, with pleasure and coming into myself in a lot of different ways. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Excuse me. I... Um I know that you're a PhD. <laughs> Excuse me. A PhD. <laughs> I know. I know that you're a PhD student yeah. at UVM. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your field of study? 
So um, I am currently at the University of Vermont studying clinical psychology. I'm getting a doctor in that. I'm in my second year there right now. Um, yeah, the work that I'm working on now really uh, focuses on, de- on depression and particularly wintertime depression because that is a big thing uh, here in Vermont. Um, but the work that I really want to do moving forward involves the intersection between uh, depression, trauma, and sexual and reproductive health, um, and pleasure being an overarching theme in all of those, um, because I think both depression and trauma can impact someone's ability to, um, to access pleasure in different ways. Um, and I also think sexual and reproductive health has a lot to do with pleasure, um, not so, yes, in the act of uh, sex, but also in, the, in other ways in which... Um, in which our like access to pleasure more broadly impacts our sexual interactions. So um, my work moving forward, I'm hoping to do something that sort of is at the intersection of those four junctures. Um, specifically in the ways that depression and trauma affect our mm-hmm. yeah. sexual and reproductive yeah. health. Yeah, so the ways in which depression and trauma can impact sexual and reproductive health and how pleasure can be used as an avenue to... Um, alleviate the impacts of depression and trauma because it can be hard to access yeah relationships Mm -hmm. of any kind after trauma yeah difficult to impact relationships difficult to um prioritize pleasure um difficult for sometimes for people to think that they are worthy of pleasure after um, traumatic things have happened uh to them and so how how there are evidence-based principles out there um, for depression and for um, different forms of for different forms of things that can arise from trauma, and um, I'm thinking about how pleasure can be used to inform those different evidence-based treatments to really enhance them and get people um, to not just a place of survival, but of like thriving after those experiences. Yeah, and I think that's so important um, in general, but also I think it relates to. Um, stories we see coming out about how black women in particular are denied health care. And I think that for you to be doing that work is really a necessary counterbalance to what we're seeing other places. Yeah. Do you have a bit to say about (laughs) the current state of health care in that way? (sighs) It's awful. (laughs) It's built like, just like this country is built on a legacy of like slavery, exploited labor, violence. Um, the healthcare system that exists now is impacted by that because that's what it was built on. And so I think about, um, like, this is a small example, but I think about TikToks and like nurses being on TikToks and like showing, like, a patient will say X, Y, and Z, and then they'll show how they don't believe that patient. And I think about how black people um, are believed. Like when sometimes I can't cite an actual study, but there has been research that shows that um, people think that black people can endure higher levels of pain than white people where they don't believe black people when they're saying they're experiencing particular levels of pain. So they don't give them as much pain medication. And so it just goes to show how our humanity is not seen in a lot of different places. Um, And the healthcare setting, unfortunately, is not an exception for that. Um, And so that is some work that I think truly needs to be addressed yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you what led you to clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, if you care to share. Yeah, um, I can share that. So my path to clinical psych was is kind of winding. Um, I um, studied anthropology and neuroscience in undergrad, and then went and got a master's in public health. 
And um, while doing that master's, I was really focused on sexual and reproductive health. Um, so, um, and that's part of what really like made me interested in the sexual and reproductive health side of the work that I want to do moving forward. Um, and so then once I finished that, I was working in a space where I was working around a lot of, doing a lot of mental health research, which gave me sort of a lens to understand depression um, and trauma from a broader, more administrative, not administrative, but a more research standpoint. Um, which was really interesting, but I was also really interested in um, doing work that was more person to person. Um, yeah, so doing research that was more applied or doing some more clinical work. Um, and so it was from there, and I was at the time working with a lot of clinical psychologists, that I decided um, that, oh, this seems like a really cool path. You can do a lot of different things with this. Um, maybe that'll be the path for me. And so it's from there that I applied to clinical psychology programs and um, found myself here in Vermont in a, in a clinical psych PhD program. <laughs> Can I ask, yeah. do you see um, folks with your identities reflected often in your field of study? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. <laughs> and it makes me sad. Um, well, not at, at least not in my immediate vicinity, for sure. Um, there are some like kind of prominent um, black clinical psychologists. Um, the main one I'm thinking of now, oh, geez, I can't remember her name, but she is the woman who runs Therapy for Black Girls, um, which is a podcast that is really amazing. Shout out to them. Shout out to them. They do good work. Um yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Write it down. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> um, they just they explore like a lot of different issues and are, are pretty amazing. Um, but she's one of the most like prominent current ones that I can think of that um, at least in my in my like world of what I research and what I think about is really big. Um, but I think black women are really needed in the field of clinical psychology. Um, I think clinical psych has often been criticized for being really influenced by um, white Western heteronormative standards. And um, while there is, while there are like a lot, like a fair number of women in clinical psych, there is still like an overwhelming, <laughs> to me, <laughs> whiteness of clinical psychology. And I think there's only good that can come out of having different perspectives and different people with different lived experiences um, in this field. So um, I'm excited to hopefully have more people coming and like hearing about clinical psych. Yeah. You're spreading the word right now. Thank I'm you. To. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. What are you currently reading um, extracurricularly? Yeah. So <laughs> I'm reading a lot of things for school, <laughs> but extracurricularly. Or that too. We could. We could get into um, that too. <laughs> well, it, it's like it's like textbooks and articles, which are interesting. But no, that's not what I'm gonna <laughs> talk about right now. Um, what I most recently read for fun was this book called "I'm Telling the Truth But I'm Lying." It's by Basi Ikpi, who is this Nigerian American uh, writer who she def she calls herself an ex poet, which I think is really interesting. And that book is a collection of essays that deals with her experience living with um, bipolar 2 disorder and the way she writes is really 
it's really tangible and it's really relatable. Um, while I think research is really, of course, very important and has its place, a lot of times it can create a lot of distance um, between what a person is experiencing when they have a disorder and the person who is like reading an account of what that disorder is like when you're reading it in a research um, through a research article or research lens. The way Bassi describes her um, experiences is very, it's very personal person. It's very much something that you can understand. It's different from someone telling you these are the symptoms of bipolar 2 disorder. It's like, no, this is how bipolar 2 um, plays out in my day-to-day life. So it's very powerful in that way. I think the book came out either last year or the year before. Um, I just got my hands on it a couple weeks ago, and it's, it's really great. So Sounds really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's been um, a great one. And then, uh, like I mentioned before, pleasure activism was a like a, if you, if I think about books that have uh, really influenced the trajectory of my life, that is definitely a big one. Um, she really talks about pleasure in a more holistic way and has really influenced my thinking um, around pleasure and how I want pleasure to play out in my life and um, in my research and in like all the things that I do. And and pleasure as a form of activism, as mm-hmm. sort of like yes. Sorry, I got excited. Okay, <laughs> so pleasure as a form of activism. So her big thing is with activism. A lot of activism is of necessity reactionary. Um, we're reacting to the fact that some really awful injustice has happened, and so we're mobilizing around those emotions and around. Um, justifying that wrong that happened which is which is of course necessary and important her thing is when you're thinking from that reactionary standpoint it's harder to think bigger it's harder to imagine or envision what like the ideal most just bestest ever <laughs> society will look like because we're we're coming from this place of um anger and despair and like justice whereas her, she's like, if you can come from a framework of pleasure, you can really envision um, more broadly something that's bigger than just a reaction to the wrong that has been done, um, which is a revolutionary framework to think from because it also really, in my mind, addresses the burnout that can really happen around um, activism and activist spaces um, because you're running on all these really difficult emotions to, to impact change, um, which is very understandable, but it's also... Like, how can we disrupt the system and center our own pleasure, which is an active, like an active activism in and of itself, because we're in a system that does not want us to prioritize or um, or to think about our own pleasure. Part of the reason like being really reactionary burns us down is because we aren't taking time for ourselves. And in a society that does not want you to um, take time for yourself, particularly when you are like in a marginalized group or population, what does it look like to say, no, I'm going to prioritize what feels good for me, what is good for me, where my yes is, um, is how she really uh, thinks about it. And to me, that was like mind blowing. <laughs> so, so yeah. think that I should read that. Yeah, you should. It sounds really good. It's super dope. It's like divided into three sections. There's like pleasure in um, activism, pleasure in like sex and pleasure. She has like a really expansive framework of thinking about drugs. Um, and so then the last section is around pleasure and drugs. Yeah. So it's a really good book. I recommend it to anybody who's interested. Shout out to Adrian Marie Brown. Shout out to Adrian Marie Brown. <laughs> Moving directly along. <laughs> what does it mean for you to be a Taurus? 
Um, I identify as a staunch tourist. Um, I very much. I think of staunch Republican only. Oh my God! As no. like the word that follows staunch. <laughs> no, I know. I just this is where I, I'm That's at. That's where your mind went. I've no, I hear it. But I've that been is yeah. Brainwashed. Yeah. That is not, that's no, not Staunch at all. Tourist. Staunch tourists. I'm reframing. I'm reframing. I reframe. Um, so tourists are folks who are um, very stubborn. <laughs> that is something that I am sometimes. Okay, I'm going to own it and claim it. It's all good. Um, I also, tourists also love like rest and food and um, things that really indulge and um, really activate the senses which is the thing I'm coming more into. Um, I think that's been a big piece of my transition, particularly like with this pleasure work, is um, being more attuned with my senses. Like what are the small things that like bring my senses like joy and pleasure and how can I pay attention to those things because it's a way of being in the present moment. Um, Tauruses are also folks who like stability, um, very loyal. We're pretty like even keeled and grounded, um, which I think is mostly true of me. yeah, so those are like those are the things I identify most in with my with my Taurus self. So how does that show up in your world? Mm. What are some things that you do where you're like, oh, that was so Taurus <laughs> of me just then? Um, with my friends, so <laughs> with my friends, if we're like arguing over silly things, um, I can be very very like entrenched in my opinion. I'll give you an example. So um, my friend and I were talking about ice cream. Um, I am not so much a Ben and Jerry's fan, which I feel like is a blasphemous thing to say in Vermont, but it's because I don't really like chunky ice creams like that. And it's just, it's just not for me. So, um, my friend and I had, me and a couple friends had like an ice cream tasting test and like, mind you months before for like months, we were going back and forth about which was better, Ben and Jerry's or Haagen-Dazs, which is like my personal favorite Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream. So, um, (laughs) we did like a blindfolded taste test where it was very serious. We had, we had like notes. We were taking notes after we had a scoop of each one. So we had to guess which, we had to rank the flavors. There were like five different flavors we had to rank. And then we also had to um, guess which brand was associated with which flavor. I will say that I was wrong. Um, I ranked the Ben and Jerry's vanilla better than the Haagen-Dazs vanilla in a blind <laughs> taste test. <laughs> but I will also say that my friend did the same. She ranked the Haagen-Dazs one higher than the Ben and Jerry's, and she was the Ben and Jerry's fan. So when I say, like, <laughs> stubborn and, like, staunch, I mean, like, in those little, like, silly, trivial things. So that was a long-winded way of saying, like, it comes out in that way. Um, it also comes out in that I can get very obsessed uh, with foods, Um my most recent food obsession was steel cut oats. <laughs> um, I also was really into beets for a moment. Um, fruit crisps were a thing. I was making fruit crisps all the time. With Banana the bread. <laughs> not with. Oh, actually, not with the steel cut. Was oats. that a weird guess? No. Oh. But it's like a thing that could be done. Hmm. Um. Yeah. So like food, um, is how it comes out to just like really really prioritizing my senses in a lot of different ways. Um, I really love lotion. I rub lotion every day. <laughs> um, and like taking the time of like using that, that act of rubbing lotion into my skin as like a really nourishing, a really like a way to nourish myself and nourish my body um, and really being present when doing that instead of just being like, okay, I have five seconds, slather it on, let's go. 
So when I'm talking about pleasure and I'm talking about being intentional and being in the moment, that's the kind of thing that I'm um, like talking about, those like small, simple joys and pleasures um, that we often take for granted. And in being a staunch Taurus, I feel <laughs> like that translates to being staunch in your like political beliefs. As yeah, well. yeah. That comes across, I would say. <laughs> yeah, and very left-leaning, in case <laughs> folks were unaware, um, which you might not have been. You don't know me. Um, yeah. But I'm very left-leaning. Um, I'm very much pro-choice. Um, I'm very much around liberation um, in all senses of the word and like the many different ways in which that can look. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> Where do you call home? Mm. Home is Houston, Texas. Um, I like I so I really like that question because there are many different ways and iterations of home uh, for me. So home is in like where I was born and grew up is Houston, Texas, um, which I love, land of Beyonce. Um, uh, home is also so I'm thinking of that question of one where I grew up, but also where I feel most at home. Um, I also feel most at home on a dance floor where they're playing Afro-Caribbean beats and Latin music, and I'm with my friends, and we're just, like, dancing our hearts out. Um, Home also feels like a good book um, in my bed with my, like, three candles lit and the lights are dim. Um, Home feels like dinner with a friend that I haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the things that come up. Home feels like uh, being on the couch in my my mom's home in Houston and like watching a Nigerian movie with her on the couch. Um, Home is like being with my brothers. I have three brothers. Shout out to Hope, Peace and Truth. Um, (laughs) And I don't know, just being silly, like riding in the car, singing stupid songs. Um, Yeah, home is home feels like where I'm most in community with others. (laughs) But you mentioned Houston, Texas. Yes. How would you say that influenced you growing up there? So um, Houston is a big city. I um, am very used to being in, in, like, I feel most comfortable in big cities, um, in places where there's more hustle and bustle happening. Um, I grew up around uh, pretty, I grew up in pretty diverse schools um, for elementary, middle, and high school. So that was something that was very comfortable for me and um, (laughs) is a bit of a shock for being in school here is a bit of a difference, I will say. Um, Being exposed to a variety of different kinds of foods, viewpoints, um, ways of being and understanding um, are all parts of uh, Houston for me. I also grew up pretty Christian, um, and that is something that in the past few years I've been thinking about and um, really trying to work out and understand my relationship to um, faith, given the ways in which Christianity has been used to oppress people across the globe um, or around the globe. And so what does it mean to how to hold or how to reconcile um, having grown up in a faith that does that and then where, how to find your own, I guess my own connection to God um, either inside that framework or outside of that framework. And that's something I'm still working out for myself. Um, yeah. Yeah. Houston is warm. <laughs> Sunshine. Oh, my God. Humidity. I know people hate humidity, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. 
So that being said, what is your take on Vermont? Hmm. Oh, Vermont. Um, so I will start with the positives. Um, Vermont has given me an appreciation of the ways in which I can find community when I think it's not likely. Um, I really appreciate the program that I'm in. Um, it's very, like, folks are very kind and supportive, and that's not something that can be said for all doctoral programs, so I very much appreciate that community and collaboration. Um, Vermont is very cold um, in a lot of different ways, weather-wise, but also I'm from Texas. I'm used to folks, like, like you see someone in the street, you say you, like, talk for a little bit, and it's fine. Um, that doesn't happen here as much. I understand it's like cold and there's snow and ice on the ground. <laughs> so everyone's just trying to get to a destination, but it just feels a little bit, uh, it just feels a little bit different. Um, there's not as many people who look like me here. And that's something I took for granted in a lot of places that I lived. Like I said, I'm from Houston. Um, I spent time in New York and in LA. So I'm just used to not being the only one of myself in a room. And so to be in a place where I'm often the only black woman um, or the only black person can um, kind of can kind of mess with your mind a little bit, um, a lot. <laughs> so then you have to, or at least what I find that I have to do is that I have to, and I already did this before, but I am more intentionally prioritize black voices in my life um, because I don't get them on a regular basis here. Um, in terms of like the media I consume, the things that I read, um, yeah, yeah. So Vermont has been an interesting transition. I will say this winter has been better than last winter. Um, I think just like the acclimation process is hard. And I, but I do have some better gear. Um, <laughs> I think someone said, I think it was someone in my program who was like, there's no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad gear. I strongly disagree. There is bad weather. <laughs> there is bad weather, but there is gear that helps with the bad weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gear is a factor yeah okay. gear is a factor in your um experience of the weather <laughs> also shelter of course because if you can't be indoors in a place that's heated then that's gonna like make the weather even worse for you yeah thank you <laughs> um anything else you'd like to add um something we we shouldn't or yeah, shouldn't miss. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I think we've we've covered uh, we've c pretty much covered all of it. Uh, the only thing I would say that we've pro we've like kind of touched on is that I think in recent years I've been really big on intention setting, which is different from setting a goal or a resolution to me. And that setting an intention is more so deciding what you want to put your energy towards. Uh, for me, a goal is more like, okay, I'm going to like eat vegetables three times a week. And then when you don't, when you like eat it twice, when you eat veggies twice, you feel bad because you didn't hit it three times. Mm. Whereas an intention is more so like, this is, this is what I'm going to focus my energy on. This is how it's going to look in my life. If it doesn't happen this one day, that's all right. Um, I could, there's, maybe I can make it happen tomorrow. Um, yeah, those kinds of things. I follow this woman. I am on Instagram maybe too much, but I follow this woman um, who she was like one way to really start developing your relationship with yourself, because I feel like a lot of people are very disconnected from themselves, is to have a small promise that you keep to yourself every day. Um, 
And if you if you miss a day where you don't keep that promise, it's fine. Um, tomorrow is another day. You can begin again. But something as small as um, when I wake up, I'm going to wait five minutes before I reach for my phone. Um, uh, when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to take a sip of water before getting started with my day. Or I will do a little stretch, a little child's pose stretch in the morning. That's the one I do <laughs> before getting my day started. So really kind of having that, that intention around... Um, how you begin and end things instead of waking up and immediately being like, I need to go X, Y, and Z. I got to do this. Because that is the mindset that like capitalism wants us in. Um, That's what's most productive for everyone else, but it's not what is healthiest for us. And of course there are like the demands of like kids and work and life and all of these different stressors. I'm not discounting that at all, but I think even in the midst of that, there are still ways we can begin to prioritize um, ourselves. And so that's the work that I'm really interested in, in doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. For sharing with us. <laughs> um, I want to thank the audience for listening to us today. Um, thank you very much. Thank um, you. I want to thank uh, Clemens Family Farm again for having us. Yes. And the Echo Center for having this Martin Luther King Jr. community celebration today. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what else to say. Praise, uh, you're wonderful. As you are you. Are <laughs> I don't do good compliments. It's not great. An That's incredible fine. person. Thank you. Incredible guest. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This you, was fun. You are more than welcome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>